0: Read recently, the Ticketmaster is one of the it's the leading seller of tickets for gatherings, which we used to do, I suppose, of theater productions, sporting events, comedians, music concerts of all, every kind. And they sell a certain kind of ticket. It's called an obstructed view ticket, or they sell seats that are called obstructed view seats, and they describe them like this. It means you'll be unable, with these sitting in these obstructed view seats, to be able to see the entire stage from these seats. You'll either have an in- incomplete view of the stage because of the position of the seats, or something will be in your line of sight, like a pole, speakers, or the soundboard. So I, I'm not much for going to theaters, but I've been to the Phantom of the Opera, and that's epic. And I liked it, but imagine watching the Phantom of the Opera with a pole, and so you're trying to you know, move your head around so that you can see what's happening on the stage and, he, and, and take it all in. That's kind of rotten. An obstructed view might be okay occasionally at a play, But an obstructed view of Jesus is never okay. And I think there are many of us, and I'm speaking for myself, who are content to have an obstructed view of Jesus. And as we move into 2021, I want to call us to remove those obstructions. It's not okay for Christians to have obstructed view seats when it comes to Jesus. You see, we can't be fixed on Jesus unless we can see Jesus. You see, a fixed on the sign outside is something that we want to be more than just jargon, but we want it to be genuine. It says, fixed on Jesus. This simple phrase is meant to guide our way into the future. We want to be fixed on Jesus when times are good. We want to be fixed on Jesus when times are hard. We want to be fixed on Jesus when everything makes sense. We want to be fixed on Jesus when nothing makes sense. We want to be fixed on Jesus when we have a whole gaggle of friends around us. We want to be fixed on Jesus when we don't. We want to be fixed on Jesus when we're old. We want to be fixed on Jesus when we're young. We want to be fixed on Jesus when we have hope. We want to be fixed on Jesus when we don't have hope. We want to be a people who are completely and totally fixed on Jesus. So this year we're going to begin a new tradition, I hope it's one that we can continue for years to come. At the beginning of each year, we're going to take a sermon or two and contemplate how we as a people can be fixed on Jesus together in this new year. So if you go for titles, here's the title. We're fixed on Jesus together. Or how we can be fixed on Jesus together in 2021. If you want to express it in a sentence, I'd say it this way. We must, we must as a church build our lives, our futures, our hope and everything we have on Jesus. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, of God. The writer to the Hebrews in these two short verses says, move away from the obstructed view seats by casting aside all sin and weight that hangs so closely. And so this morning we're going to consider two possible obstructions that some of us may carry into 2021 that we need to move to the side. First... I'll put it positively, and then we'll talk about it negatively. Hold fast to the scandal of grace. Or don't forget how scandalous grace is. We do, especially those of us who have followed Jesus for years. We forget. We sing about grace. We talk about grace. We hear about grace. We read books on grace. Sermons are preached on grace. But I think at times what we have as Christians is a domesticated grace. What I'm going to work on this year personally, and I invite all of us to do, is recapture the scandal of grace. A scandal, according to Merriam-Webster, is a circumstance that offends propriety. Another way to say that, a circumstance is just straight messed up. Or establish moral conceptions. Another way to say that is it's just whack. Or disgraces those associated, associated with it. That's a scandal. A scandal is something that burns the ears and causes people to shake their heads and say, What? That can't be true. I can't believe that. That's how scandalous the grace is that we have in Christ. You know why? As we heard from Revelation chapter 5, he is the worthy one. He has 24 elders and the living creatures proclaiming his worthiness on a regular basis, never ceasing. And it is a scandal, a straight up, crazy, makes no sense kind of scandal that this holy, worthy God would choose to associate with unholy people like us, That is a scandal. And we forget how scandalous it is. We rebellious sinners who turn away have access to God Most High because God the Son, though he was perfect, died for our sins so that we might be able to have communion with Now, if that makes sense to you, like if you say, okay, yeah, you know, big deal, you lost the scandal of grace. We Christians, we can do that. You know why? In part because we don't think of our sin as that big a deal. We think, yeah, whatever. Now, I'm not calling us to be people who navel gaze or try to unearth new and undiscovered sins in our lives. Not doing that at all. But what I am saying is it's very easy as Christians to forget how scandalous it is. Not for us to be associated with him, but for him to be associated with us. You know what? God has... I've got nothing God needs. It's not as if he was thinking... Okay, I'm looking for somebody who likes plaid, um, got a pretty good right arm, um, and colors his hair gray. There's Rich. That's not how I've got nothing to offer him. None of us do. And it's scandalous that he has chosen to associate himself with us nonetheless. Scandalous. You see, we can be so used to the idea of grace. Yeah, I'm saved by grace. And forget that grace means God chose not to count our many sins against us, but to count them against His Son and pour out upon His Son the wrath that we deserve so that we might have hope in God and access to him. That's scandalous. Salvation is by grace. And you know what? You know one of the ways I've seen in my own life and maybe this is something that you can understand if you're here at home with the live stream. One of the ways I know that I've lost the scandal of grace is that I subtly change the definition of grace in my mind. Grace Slowly, not all at once, but grace becomes kind of a payment system, really. Kind of. You know, I can quote Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 that says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. So that no one may boast, and that we say, Amen, that's great. I couldn't earn anything before God. That's wonderful. Salvation's a gift, it's completely undeserved. It's all from Him, and it's not by works. But you know how I know that I've lost something of the scandal of grace? I forget that if I've been bought by grace and I brought nothing to Him, I have no rights before God. None. I remember reading an account of a preacher who preached a message on grace. And a woman who was not a Christian and was considering what it meant to follow Jesus came up to him afterwards. You know, he spoke the same kinds of things that you've heard from this pulpit. Grace is amazing. Grace is free. Grace is wonderful. It's a wonderful gift. And after the sermon, the woman came up to this man and said, following Jesus seems great, but that grace stuff is dangerous. It's scary. It's reckless. And the preacher was taken aback a little bit and said, what do you mean? She said, if salvation is really only by grace, and the Christian brings nothing but sin needing forgiveness, to God, the forgiven Christian is in a very precarious and tenuous situation. They receive a gift from God but have no claim upon God. You see, it'd be different. This is, it'd be different if we negotiated, or negotiated a contract with him and said, I'll follow you. You do this, I'll do this. Or if we work for him, I'll work, you pay me. That's not what he did. He said, you've got nothing. You can come to me, and I own all of you. We have no rights. We didn't broker a deal, negotiate a a contract, offer service for payments. We come to him saying, help, and he offers us himself. And we are completely owned. Now, if that doesn't make sense, well, let me say it this way. When we're tempted to be consumed with our rights before God, we might have lost the scandal of grace because we have no rights before God. There are no conditions we bring to God. We're not promised that we'll have a happy marriage. Wonderful relations with our family, a a, a fulfilling career, a good education, a good reputation with everyone, the constant companionship of good friends, a minimal number of heartbreaks. Heartbreaks are not promised those things. That's why grace is frightening, it demands everything. Because God has given His Son completely to us without condition. We now, complete, we now have no conditions to lay before Him. When we forget the scandal of grace and subtly begin to think we have rights, grace becomes not much. When we forget the scandal of grace, we will live with an obstructive view of Jesus And I don't want us to live with an obstructed view of Jesus. Now, while we have no rights before God, we have a myriad of promises. And those are two different things. Now, in our world, a promise isn't worth much, right? A promise, we've had so many people give us promises, and they break those promises. Because the promise is only as good as the person who gives it. Now the rights, those are written down, they're in the Constitution. We have the the, the Bill of Rights. We have all kinds of things that tells us as Americans what our rights are. So we're used to thinking that rights are much more important than promises. Now when it comes to God, it's exactly reversed. We have no rights before God. But we have tons of promises from God. And because he is truthful and infinite and always faithful, he cannot go back on even one of those promises. The reason that we can say it's much better before God not to have rights, but to have promises is because God is the one who gives us those promises. And these promises will never change. Now... Promises. listen, all you need to do is just ransack the Bible. I mean, the Bible's, at, like, you just can, as a Christian, open it up and ransack. I give you freedom. Rob the Bible of its promises and take them and take one. Put one in your belt and carry it around with you. Hold it, have it, keep it, live by it as a way that you can light, have a light from God in the darkness and confusion of trouble. I'll tell you the one I've been using recently. Well, let me back up. My temptation, and it's been this way since I was two, you can ask my parents, is to worry. To be anxious. And you know, here's the silly thing about anxiety and, wor- and worry. Sometimes I carry around worry and anxiety and I forget that I'm doing that. Like yesterday this happened. Yesterday. Yesterday. So, yesterday, long day, I'm trying to prepare something to say today that makes sense. And I just, inside, I just have this unease and I feel all bound up and trying to manage it. I'm thinking, well, maybe I'm hungry, maybe I need a nap, um, you know, whatever. And so then it just dawns on me hey, doofus, you're worried. Oh, yeah, that's what that is. So, what do I do? Psalm 55:22 says, cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. <laughs> so that's what I did. I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm going to number these burdens out one by one. I'm going to throw them on you. When I carry my own burdens, I think and live in this pretend world that says I can sustain myself. I can't. But let me cast my burdens on you, and I need you to sustain me. And I'm going to name my burdens. I'm going to take these anxieties that weigh me down, and I'm going to say, here, you take it. I can't, I can't figure out how this is going to go. I don't know what's going to happen over here, but I can give it to you and say, you sustain me. And that's a promise. I would rather have this promise right here than any right before any government anywhere. So what's the promise you're going to look to this year? I don't want any of us to have an obstructed view of Jesus in 2021. I want us to be a people who build our lives, our futures, our hopes, our everything on Him and nowhere else. Not only must we hold fast the scandal of grace, another potential obstruction for us, is that we're more wary of sin than uh, that we that we are more wary of suffering than sin and I'll say it the other way like it's put on the screen it's easy for us to be more wary of suffering than sin we need to be more wary more afraid of sin than suffering now I'm not trying to present a false dichotomy but I read an author who recently said an ounce of sin is more serious than a ton of suffering and that hit me, because I don't think that. Now, I know I run a risk talking to a room full of people about sin. And there are people here who, are, who will over, overly internalize things. Not talk, listen, we're not talking about those sins you don't know about. And we're not trying to say that suffering is small we're not trying to, to minimize suffering in any way, shape, or form. We're not trying to say that we should enjoy suffering or, not pretend that, or, or pretend that it's not hard. Nor are we saying that we shouldn't respond in empathy and love to those who are suffering. We should. We should be a people who constantly move in compassion and love toward those who are heartbreaking, heartbroken. I'm also not saying we should be consumed by our sin. That's a mistake in a different direction. I'm saying something different. I'm saying something like this I'm more afraid of suffering that might come at me from out there than the little domesticated sins I carry around. That's just the fact of it. I'd never thought about it that way. You know, when I look back, I think, oh, I remember the suffering and how hard it was. And I think, I don't want to do that again. But I can be content to carry around sin and domesticate it. You know, like you see people with those little dogs in those carrying cases. You carry them around and domesticate, and it's like that. You just get used to it. You just get used to these sins because you think it's a small sin. It's not that big a deal. I can manage it, and that's the problem. When we live with those sins that we know about, now I'm not saying any of us can be sinless. That doesn't happen. But I am saying when we excuse those little sins and act like they're not that big a deal, We put an obstruction between us and Jesus. We sit ourselves down in an obstructed view seat. Because it's very easy, it's very easy to think of little sins as something we can manage and hope and pray that we don't suffer too much. And I think we need to think about it the other way around. I think we need to recognize that if we're not killing sin, sin will be killing us, even the little things. Again, I'm not saying we should go on journeys of discovery to find new and unknown sins deep in our souls. I'm talking about those sins that we know about, that we excuse, and that we say, well, if you understood, or we say, it's not that bad, or we say, I've struggled so long, I don't think I can do anything different. Those. Those that yap at our heels. Let me give you an example. Let me... Let's take a small sin, one that we might be apt to excuse and consider not that big a deal. And let's just consider it for a moment. Let's say the sin of, com- of jealousy. Now, all of us know what it's like to be jealous. All of us. And it's easy to take a sin like that and not think that that's that big a deal. Maybe it starts out as a comparison and saying, well, why isn't my life as happy as theirs? Why don't I make as much as he does? Why doesn't my wife look like her? Why doesn't my husband act like that? Why aren't my kids like theirs? Does anybody realize how hard I have it? It starts out comparison. It it starts out as discontentment. And then it sinks into jealousy. Jealousy might not seem like that kind of, that big of a deal, but James says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, There will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, notice he doesn't say where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every vile practice. No, no, no. That's on the path. He's predicting. He's saying, you know what goes along with jealousy and eventual uh, selfish ambition and jealousy? Eventually, everything evil. when we try to manage and re- manage and excuse remaining sin instead of confessing and repenting, we take a step toward potential spiritual ruin. This doesn't happen quickly. It doesn't happen very obviously. It happens slowly, imperceptibly, but make no mistake, it happens forcefully. And so what we must do is ensure as Christians and members of our church here at Center Church, whether you're here or at home, that we don't have an obstructed view of Jesus with these little domesticated sins that we think we can manage in 2021. So what might those be in your life that are obstructing your view? What do we do? We confess and repent. Repent and we confess, and we repent, and we fight, and we fight, and we fight, and we fight, and we don't give in, and we don't say that's just who I am, and we don't say I can't do anything about it, and we don't say, well, I don't know what to do. What we do is we fight, and we decide I'm not going to come to terms with these little sins. I'm not going to make a truce with these things because I have no idea where they will lead, and I do not want to be a person who has who has spiritual ruin looming. I don't want to be a person who's about to walk off a cliff because I am so blinded to the reality of what I'm carrying around and I'm not paying attention to the world around me. I'm paying attention to my own little world and I'm not looking up at Jesus and I fall off a cliff and, and, and the, the reality is that it starts out with something little that we can just say, hey, that's not that big a deal, but it is. We must be people and this is a, we, may we be a people who are more concerned about our little sins than the suffering we might experience. I don't wish suffering on anybody. Anyone who is experiencing suffering I'll do whatever I can to help. But I am saying we can't give in I want us all, me and all of us, to not have an obstructed view of Jesus this year. I want the scandal of grace to remind us we have no rights, only a gift. I want us to be a people who are more concerned with our own sins than potential suffering. You see, one of the good news, one of the good things is that we do not fight alone. As Christians, we fight with Christ. We're not just on His side. It's much better to say, He is on our side. And if you're wondering, is He on my side all you have to do is look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. One of the reasons that, that the writer to the Hebrews calls us to look at Jesus is because he says Jesus is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the author of our faith in that he was the one who died took the punishment we deserve so that we might be able to trust him. He is the author of our faith. He's the author of the Christian faith in general, but he's the author of our faith in particular. He is the one who put in you a desire to want to follow him. Not only is he the author, he is also the perfecter, which means that he promises to be right alongside you as you confess sins. And as you, as you repent, he promises not just to forgive you, but to empower you to fight and fight and fight and stick it out and stay close to Jesus. That's what he does. He, stay, he, he holds you fast. See, I want us to be a people who fix ourselves on him unreservedly. May we be a people who build our lives, our futures, Our hopes are everything on Him and Him alone. Listen, there's nobody who loves you like Him. There is nobody who is committed to you like Jesus. There is no one worth trusting like Him. There is nobody worth hoping in like Him. There is nobody worth building a life upon like Jesus Christ. No one. And we can't afford to have an obstructed view. Not this year. Not any year. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm grateful that as Christians, we're free to be able to consider shortcomings in ourselves because we don't consider those shortcomings alone. It's not as if when we're convicted, you send us off to the corner just to figure things out. It's not how it works. You come close and you help. But I pray for all of us. I pray for all of us, starting with me. I pray that I wouldn't forget the scandal of grace that you have chosen to associate yourself with me. The same is true for all of us, for everyone here and watching at home. It's a disgrace at one level, but it's a disgrace I'm going to sing about till the day I die. I pray that we would not forget that scandal and lay hold of promises instead of rights. Lord, I pray that we would not be a people that live with an obstructive view of you when it comes to little sins. May we not excuse them. May we not act like they're not that big a deal. May we not try to manage but may we kill. I don't want us to have an obstructive view of you. I want us, oh God, through the power of your Spirit and the hope of Jesus Christ to look to you. Keep us close. And I pray that where we are convicted, each of us individually, we would do business with you, Lord. Talk to you. Ask forgiveness. Ask for strength. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.